0: Well, hey, it's uh, very good for us to be together. It's great to see you. I'm glad that you all survived the polar vortex this past week. Don't you love how sensational the media seems to make things? When I was a kid, we called the polar vortex cold, And uh, so glad you guys all survived the cold. It's good to be together. If you're a guest or you're newer here to the Medina East Campus, I do just want to extend to you, like Tommy mentioned a moment ago, it's a very, very special welcome. Thanks for being our guest. We hope that you feel welcome because you are welcome. Uh, My name is Tony. I'm the campus pastor here at the Medina East Campus. If uh, we've never had a chance to meet, I would love to remedy that. And so if you get a chance, if you have an opportunity, uh, please stop me in the cafe afterwards. I'd love to hear your story. Uh, how you got to grace and kind of who you came with. And so I'd love to get a chance to meet you. Uh, But if you are just joining us, if you're just kind of tuning in, you are actually catching us sort of in the middle of a sermon series that we've been in for the past uh, several weeks now. We've been calling Jesus Come and See. And basically what this series is, uh, the best way to explain it, is we said that the series is really like sort of an an invitation into an investigation. And so in the series, we said what we're doing is we're actually inviting everybody regardless of where you might be in your faith journey. Some of you might be followers of Jesus. Some of you might be investigating Jesus. And we said that no matter who you are, wherever you are in your faith journey, we're inviting you to come and see Jesus, to actually come and see him for yourself, to come and look at his teaching, to come and look at his life, to come and observe the things that he said about himself, and then to grapple with those things and think through the implications of those things for yourself. And again, the reason we said that this series is so important is because of this. We said that all of us in our society society, we said that every single one of us, we begin our understanding and perception of Jesus with what we called a hand-me-down version. And here's what we meant. We said that all of us are handed down an understanding of Jesus, that that's sort of where we begin, right? And so for some of you, maybe your understanding of Jesus was something that was handed to you from your parents. And so your parents were the ones who kind of gave you your perception of Jesus. You sort of inherited that from them. For some of you, maybe you grew up in a church and you inherited this understanding of Jesus from a religious community. Or maybe you didn't grow up in church and maybe your presentation and understanding of Jesus came from the media. It was what the media presented to you or whatever a friend that you may have had that was a Christian or whatever it might be. And so we said this, we said for better or for worse, we all start there. Our our understanding of Jesus begins with this hand-me-down version. But here's what we said. We said that while all of us start there with Jesus, that we can't stop there. Uh, that there is a need for us at some point to continue on and to look at Jesus and to continue to do this, even if you're a follower of Jesus, to continue to come back to Jesus and come and see him for yourself. Now, the way that we're doing this, you might remember, is we're actually journeying through the gospel of Matthew, and the reason we're looking at the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew is a book of the Bible, but we said much more than that, Matthew is so much more than just a book of the Bible, we said Matthew is actually one of the earliest first century eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus that we have in our possession, and so Matthew actually was a guy who would have known Jesus. He lived in the first century, would have walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, Observed Jesus's life, and Matthew actually documented for us the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did. And so we said that Matthew is really quite honestly as close as we can get to the eyewitness kind of uh, looking at Jesus's life and his teaching. And so that's what we're doing together now. If you missed any of the previous talks in this series, by the way, I would encourage you to go back. You can listen to those. You can watch those on our podcast, on our app, on our website. All of those are for free, and that might be helpful to you. And so if you want to kind of catch up, you can feel free to do that. But today, as we continue in this investigation, as we continue to come and see Jesus together, uh, we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 9. So I want to invite you to grab your Bibles if you would, and if you'd flip with me to Matthew 9, that's where we're going to be spending uh, our time here today, is in Matthew chapter 9. And so go ahead and grab a Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, that's not a problem at all. Uh, You can feel free to grab one of those black Bibles that's under the chairs, page uh, 688. One is where you're gonna find Matthew chapter nine there. So go ahead and find that if you would, please. So Matthew nine. And then let me just say too, if you're a guest with us today and you don't own a copy of the Bible, like if you physically don't own your own copy of the Bible, we would love for you to just take one of ours, and uh, we think it's important you have a Bible, so feel free to grab that and take that home with you. So Matthew 9, go ahead and flip it. Now, as you're finding Matthew chapter 9, uh, and before we read the passage that we're about to read today, I thought that a good way to kind of tee up our conversation would be to tell you a little bit of a story and actually to kind of introduce you to somebody else's story uh, that I think might be pretty helpful to what we're about to read. And so there's a family that's been coming here to the Medina East Campus, uh, pretty much from when we first started the Medina East Campus. So uh, you might not know Medina's been here for, uh, the Medina East Campus of Grace has been here for about six years now. We started at the end of 2012, beginning of 2013 is when that all started. And there's a family that goes to our church that I want to introduce you to. They've been part of things from the very beginning. Some of you, if you've been here, you know them. But that's the casito family. And so this is uh, the casito family. Some of you guys know them. Um, they're near and dear to many of us, good friends of mine, and, and maybe for you too. If, you, if, you're not, uh, if you're newer here to Grace, you might not know them. But this is Alan and his wife, Sammy. And these are their two children. This is Freedom and Shine. And so this is their beautiful family, Alan and Sammy, the Casitos. And as I was um, preparing over the past few weeks for today's talk, the reason I wanted to introduce you to this family is because as I was looking at the passage we're about to look at, I was reminded of their story. And actually, more specifically, I was reminded of um, Alan's story and so I actually asked Alan, I called him up and I said, man, would you be okay if I shared a little bit of your story? And he said, of course, that would be, that would be fine. And uh, so we got together and he kind of shared some of the details with me just to make sure I had the facts straight. I'm obviously not going to tell you his whole story. Uh, his whole story is his to tell. In fact, I'd encourage you to go talk to him. He has an incredible story. He's actually around today. Uh, you'll see Alan. Uh, but here's kind of a little bit about him. So Alan and Sammy, uh, they both grew up in uh, Kampala, Uganda. And when Alan was very young, so when he was about eight years old, uh, his mother passed away. And uh, after his mom died, he and his older brother, so he has a brother that's about a year older than him, uh, in effect, they were orphans. And the man, um, they were put in charge of this man, they were put in the care of this man who was um, very negligent and was very abusive, And and so Alan was telling me that as a 9, 10-year-old kid that uh, this guy that was taking care of him would sometimes leave uh, for days, long periods of days, sometimes weeks at a time, and would leave Alan and his brother without food, no food at all. And so Alan said it was pretty common that they would go days and sometimes even the course of an entire week without having a meal. And so he said that they would have to, you know, 9, 10 years old, he said they had to rely on either the goodwill, of other people around them to help feed them, or they would have to get creative. He said sometimes what they would do is they would walk into the fields that were kind of around by, and they would, they would pick grain, and they would eat that just as a way to try to satiate their hunger or whatever it might be. And so during this time when they were living with this man, like I said, he was very negligent, so they weren't enrolled in school. Uh, this man basically gave them a list of chores that they needed to do. And if those chores weren't done in the way that this man wanted them to be done, if they weren't done in the time that he wanted them to be done, he would go uh, to be, he would kind of result, he would basically become very violent and very abusive. Um, in fact, Alan told me, you need to talk to him about a story, but Alan told me that one time things got so bad uh, that when he was about 12 years old, uh, that this man actually tried to kill him and his brother, literally tried to kill them. Uh, he chased them with a machete and was threatening their life. Alan said that it was by the grace of God somehow they were able to escape. Um, and basically, he and his brother were in a situation where, you know, Alan's 12, his brother's 13, and they basically concluded that there was no way out. They said, we're trapped. This In this scenario we're in, they said either we're gonna starve to death or this man is going to kill us. That's what they concluded. And so Alan and his brother, they, they made a decision at, at that time, after that event occurred, they made a decision that they would together end their life, and so Alan and his brother, they actually went down, and somehow they were able to get a bottle of rat poison, and their plan was that they were going to sit at the kitchen table, and together, they were going to drink this rat poison, and they were going to end their life. I mean, he's 12 years old, 12 years old, and Alan told me, he said that when he was in that moment, and he had the rat poison literally in his hands, prepared to drink it, he said that at that moment, he remembered something that a teacher had told him previously back when he was in elementary school. Alan later would recognize this as God's grace and God's intervention in his life. But basically, Alan said that in that moment, he remembered something. And so he had this teacher when he was in elementary school that, was, that loved Jesus, was a Christian, and would try to share with the students the love of God and the good news about Jesus. And he said he remembered something, that that made an impact on him. And in that moment, he remembered something his teacher said. And so he said to his brother, he said, before we drink this poison, he said, I remember the teacher said that God doesn't want us to kill. God doesn't want us to murder people. And he said, and if we did this, if we were to drink this right now, would we not in effect be murdering ourselves? And he said, I don't think that would be pleasing to God. I don't think we should do this because it wouldn't please God. And this is what Alan told his brother. He said, we have suffered enough in this life. Why would we want to suffer double? And so instead, this was the plan that they concocted. 12 and 13 years old, this is the plan they came up with. They said, instead of drinking this poison, next time this man tries to kill us, let's not run. Let's just let him kill us. And then we can honor God and we can be with him and we can end our suffering in this life. And so man, things didn't get much better. In fact, things continued this way for about a year until suddenly things took a radical change. When Alan was 13 years old, he had an aunt who somehow heard about the situation that they were in. She came to find out about the neglect and about the abuse. She was infuriated. She was full of compassion. She actually came and rescued Alan and his brother. She went on to adopt them, very gracious lady, went on to adopt them into her family. She paid for them to get an education. Alan ended up graduating high school. In fact, Alan's an incredibly smart person. If you don't know him, he actually graduated in the top 2% of all students in Uganda, got a full-ride scholarship to college, and was ended up doing that, got his, got his, uh, got his degree in statistics. Very, very, very smart guy. The thing about Alan's story, I think, is really interesting is that when he was in high school and when he was in college, he started to get really serious about following Jesus. Uh, He got connected to a church. Uh, He actually became an elder in that church, began to give his life to serving other people. Uh, Through the grace of God, he was able to forgive this man who had done these terrible things to him. You need to talk to him about it. It's an incredible story. Now, Alan was telling me, I thought this was so fascinating. He said that when he was in college, late at night sometimes, he would go to the church in Uganda to pray. And he said there'd be no one else there, and the church was open, and so he would go in to pray and kind of worship by himself. And as he would go late at night to pray and worship, he began to notice that he would find orphans that were hidden in the corners of the church that there was orphans that would come into the church late at night and they basically would try to hide in the corner as a way of finding shelter. I don't know if you guys are aware or not, but the orphan situation in Uganda is, is dramatic. There are 2.5 to 3 million orphans uh, in Uganda primarily because of the AIDS epidemic, partially because of civil war within that country. And so Alan said that he would find these orphans in the corner of the church and he said that when he would go and talk to them, They would tell them about how, you know, tell him about how their parents had died of AIDS, or they would tell them about the abuse that they were they were incurring during that time. And Alan told me, he said, when I saw these orphans in the corner of the churches, he said I could not help but see myself in them. I could not help but see myself in my own circumstance that I was in, and I couldn't not do anything. I had to do something. And so Alan actually began, just from his own resources, began caring for these orphans. He started to buy them meals. Eventually, he started to get some of the other church members involved. They ended up renting a house. What started with two orphans turned into 10 orphans. They started to hire caregivers to help with that. And long story short, what started as a way to begin a few orphans in Uganda has grown into a full-grown child care organization and ministry called the Sanyuka family. As some of you guys maybe have heard of Sanyuka, it's actually a ministry that we partner with right now. It's an orphanage in Uganda that Alan continues to lead. Uh, There's actually a table with information. And get this, Sanyuka today cares for 57 orphans, providing for them the feeling and the love of a family providing for them nurture and support, education, discipleship, food, shelter, all of those things. I mean, it's just incredible when you think about it. And since then, Alan and Sammy have actually moved here to the United States. They moved here primarily to try to connect hearts and resources back to the ministry in Uganda. They frequently go back to try to help these kids that are in these situations and are in this need. And I just think it's so amazing. I was talking to Alan. He was sitting in my my kitchen this past week as we were talking. And I just remember I looked at him at one point and I said, Alan, I said, man, I am so thankful for you. I said, and I am so thankful that when you were 12 years old that you didn't drink that poison. Because of your life and because of your family, 57 other lives have been saved and counting because your one life was saved. 57, just like you are being transformed and are being changed and counting and more like it. And you know, when I was thinking about Alan's story, the reason it came to my mind is because it reminded me so much of the passage that we're about to read because here's what I want you to think about. In Alan's story, here's a guy, here's a guy who was rescued and who was saved from a terrible situation because of the compassion and the love of other people and because of the grace of God. And yet Alan, Alan didn't simply let the love and compassion of others stop within him but instead he allowed it to flow through him and into the lives of other people. Alan so easily could have been the beneficiary of that grace and that compassion and that salvation in his life, but instead of allowing that to just flow into him, Alan also turned and let it flow through him into the lives of other people. And listen, would you believe me, would you believe me if I told you that exactly the work that God has done in Alan's life is precisely the work that he wants to do in your life as well. Would you believe me if I told you that? Would you believe me if I told you that I believe what God has done in Alan is an example and is a prototype of what God wants to do in your life? Would you believe me if I told you that? See, because here's what I believe with all of my heart. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't believe this with all my heart. I believe that what God wants for every single person in this room is that he wants to save you, he wants to redeem you, He wants to forgive you, and he wants to bless you. I think God wants to do all of those things for you, but here's the thing. I don't think God wants to stop there. I think God wants to save you and redeem you. I think he wants to bless you, and then listen, I think he wants to use you. I think he wants to use his power in you to flow through you, that you would be a conduit of salvation and redemption and blessing into the lives of other people. We talk about this a lot at the Medina East Campus. If you've been here, you've probably heard us say this before. We say that, man, God wants to do some stuff for you. And that's true. God wants to do some stuff for you. But he doesn't want to stop there. He also wants to do some stuff in you so that he can do some stuff through you, so he can do some stuff through you. I believe that that's what God wants for every single person. One of us. I don't think that means you need to go start an orphanage in Uganda. But what I mean is I believe that that is the work that God wants to do in all of our lives. And I don't know if there's a clearer passage in the Bible that explains this reality than what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 9. So let's take a look at it together, and let me show you what Matthew is inviting us to come and see. So we're going to start off in Matthew chapter 9, verse uh, 35, and here's what the Bible says. Let's go ahead and jump in. It says this, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Okay, so let me just hit pause there for a minute. If you've missed the last several weeks in this series, this is actually a really good summary of everything that we've seen so far. So, so far in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus has begun his ministry. He's gathered a group of disciples with him. Uh, He is going around and he is going from village to village, town to town, he is transforming lives, right? So he's healing people. He's talking about the kingdom. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He's healing diseases and sicknesses. We talked about that last week. So Jesus is going around. He is just transforming Now, I want you to notice what happens next. Look at verse 36. The Bible says, when Jesus saw the crowds, so as Jesus went town to town and as he went village to village, as he interacted with humanity, the Bible actually is gonna tell us the primary emotion that Jesus felt as he interacted with people. When Jesus went town to town, village to village, and he saw the human condition, the Bible actually tells us what Jesus' primary emotion that motivated his ministry was. And I want you to notice what it is right here. What is his primary emotion? Well, before we talk about what it is, let me talk about what it's not, because I think it's important. Notice what the Bible doesn't say. Okay, so the Bible doesn't say this. It doesn't say, when Jesus saw the crowds, he was angry and frustrated with everybody because they all doubted him. That's not what it says. Now that's true, many people did doubt him, but that's not his reaction when he saw the human situation. The Bible doesn't say this. The Bible doesn't say, when Jesus saw the crowds, he was just like really annoyed because they couldn't get their act together, which also is true, by the way. People wouldn't, couldn't get their act together, but the Bible doesn't tell us that that's the way Jesus felt. I think this is so important. The Bible says that when Jesus interacted with humanity and when he looked at our situation, that the primary emotion that he felt was this, that he had compassion on them, that he was, some of your translations say, he was filled With compassion. Now, this is actually a really strong term. In fact, the word compassion in the original language—get this—it's actually where it's actually translated literally, bowels or intestines. Isn't that weird? Bowels and intestines. You're like, that sounds kind of strange. Well, the reason. It's, it's translated that way It's because back in these times, your bowels and your intestines were considered the seat of your emotions. And so if you love someone or if you had compassion or if you felt something, you would describe that in terms of your bowels or your intestines. It doesn't really translate too well in our society. Right? You'd be hard-pressed to go to the store and find a Valentine's Day card that said, like, baby, I love you with all my bowels. Like, you're not gonna <laughs> find that, right? I don't think I've heard one love song that was like, honey, when I see you, it makes my bowels move. Like I've never, that would, be, that would be insulting, right? That's just not how it works. But actually, if you think about it, it does translate a little bit because we'll say things like this. Like when I heard Alan's story, do you know how I felt when he was telling me a story? I told him, I said, oh, it's gut-wrenching. It's gut-wrenching. It makes me sick to my stomach to think about the situation that you were in. And we use the same terms. And listen, here's what the, I just want you to understand this, this is so important. When Jesus looks down at humanity and when he looks at the human situation, his primary emotion is not anger, and it's not frustration, and it's not annoyance. You know what it is? It's it's gut-level compassion. It's, oh, oh, that's, that's how he feels. Why does he feel that way? Well, it tells us. It tells us. Look at this. Because. Why? Because they're harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The Bible says that this is, this is Jesus' diagnosis of the human condition. Oh, what's wrong? Harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Some of you have different translations. If you have the NLT, the New Living Translation, it says confused and helpless. If you have the New American Standard Version, it would say this. It would say distressed and dispirited. If you have um, Eugene Peterson's The message translation, it says confused and aimless. In other words, here's what the Bible's telling us. This is that when Jesus looks at us, he sees that we're like sheep without a shepherd, confused and aimless, harassed and helpless. And, And listen, I think that this diagnosis of the human situation that Jesus gave back in the first century, I think that if he was to look at Medina, Ohio, I think he would assess the same way. I think he would say, men, they're harassed and they're helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Because think about it. Isn't this true? All of us, every single one of us in this life, we are all meandering around trying to find, aimlessly trying to find purpose, trying to find significance, trying to fill an emptiness within us. All of us are trying to do this. And there's all of these competing voices in our society that are telling us this is how you fill that emptiness. This is how you find true happiness. This is how you find true fulfillment in life. And yet many of those things that promise us that they're gonna fulfill us and satisfy us and give us joy leave us harassed and helpless and hungry and empty. And man, I could give you so many examples of how this plays out in our society and I'm sure you could give me a bunch too. Let me just give you a few. For the sake of example, how about this one? We all know this. In our society, one of the loudest voices that we hear is that the true pathway to happiness and the true pathway to fill the emptiness that all of us feel inside is to pursue wealth. And so, man, if you just had more money and you just had more stuff and if you just had more square footage and if you just had, you know, whatever, then, then you would be happy and then you'd be able to fill the emptiness. And here's the thing, how many of us have heard the story of someone who has made that the primary goal of their life, to pursue wealth, to pursue materialism, and then when they finally achieved it, they looked back and said, this isn't it. How many times have we heard that story? I mean, too many times. And I'll just give you a few examples. Here's a couple quotes from a few people who made that the ambition of their life and would tell you it was a bad idea. So this is Henry Ford. Uh, Henry Ford, you guys know, a business tycoon. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, fast fact. Henry uh, Henry Ford is the sixth wealthiest person of the modern period. Today, he would have been worth the equivalent of $199 billion, okay? Very rich, incredibly affluent, notoriety, business tycoon, And yet, what did he say? At the peak of his affluence, he said this. I was happier when I was doing a mechanics job. That's what he said. I was much happier before all. I was happier when I was just doing a mechanics job. How about this one? Jim Carrey, famous actor, uh, most known, of course, for Dumb and Dumber, probably my favorite movie, by Jim Carrey. He said this. He said, I think everybody, famously said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they've ever dreamed of so that they could see that it's not the answer. You see what Jim Carrey says? I pursued it. I pursued fame, and I pursued wealth, and I got it. And I wish everyone did. Why? Because they'd see that it's just not the answer. It doesn't do anything to satiate the emptiness that we feel inside of us. How about this one? This comes from a guy named William Post, Bobby Post. Bobby Post won the Pennsylvania lottery, won $16.2 million in the lottery. And here's what he said two years after the fact. I wish it never happened, is what he says, It was totally a nightmare, $16.2 million, total nightmare, that's his assessment. Some of you are like, I'd like to find out what kind of nightmare that it, right? But man, honestly, what, what do you see, review after review? What are they saying? We listened to that voice, we followed it, and what happened? Harassed, helpless, like sheep, without a shepherd. How about this one? We live in a society where one of the common voices that we hear is we hear that true happiness and fulfillment is found in beauty. And so if you look a certain way, and if you have the right type of body, and if you wear the right types of things, then that's how you're gonna find your value that's how you're gonna find significance, that's how you're gonna find these things in life, and so whatever you need to do, whatever surgery you need to get to make yourself look a certain, whatever workout routine you gotta to do to be a certain kind of whatever it needs to be, you just need to do that, and yet isn't it interesting that statistic after statistic and study after study have shown how the beauty industry today has had an enslaving effect on our society and specifically young women. I was reading this one thing, it's probably no surprise to you, but I was reading this article, it was a study that was done in 2011 and it was about the beauty industry and specifically how it works in conjunction with social media. And they were talking about how since the advent of social media, how it's affected young girls. And here, here's what it concluded. I thought that this was this is probably doesn't surprise anybody. The more time girls spend on social media, the more they suffer conditions of anorexia, bulimia, poor body image, negative approach to eating, and more urges to be on weight loss diet. This, does, that, does that surprise any one of us in this room that that's the case? And there's this voice that's saying... Look like this, look like this, be like this. Then you'll be happy, then you'll be satisfied. And where's it left us? Aimless, harassed, and helpless. I read this one article. It said that today, since the advent of social media, 4% of women in America would say they feel beautiful. 4%. That means 96% of you, if I asked you, do you feel like you're beautiful and valuable, you would say no. Harassed. Helpless. Helpless sheep without a shepherd. How about this one? There's a voice in our culture that says, if you want to be happy, live for yourself. Radical individualism. You do you. Whatever makes you happy, you do that. You need more me time. You need to focus on your interests. You need to be about yourself. You know it's so fascinating? I've been reading these, these uh, psychological, uh, these articles from Psychology Today. There's so many of these. Let me just show you one of the headlines. It says this. It says, is an increase in individualism damaging our mental health? And it's fascinating, the leading psychologists today would say that the epidemic of depression and anxiety that we are experiencing in our society in America is unique, and they said that it's linked, what they believe is that it's linked directly to the radical individualism that we face. The more selfish we get as a culture, the more anxious and depressed we become as a result of it. And what is all of this saying? I think it's exactly what Jesus is saying. I think he's looking at the human situation and he's saying they're harassed and they're helpless. And they're like sheep without a shepherd. They need a good shepherd. They need someone who's gonna show them their real value and their real worth and their real purpose and where true fulfillment is actually found. And the Bible says that Jesus is gut level, gut level full of compassion. But then I want you to notice what he does next because I think this is just so powerful. Watch this. The Bible says, verse 37, then he said to his disciples, so Jesus, right, he's full of compassion. He's like, oh my gosh, They're like sheep without a shepherd. So he's like, disciples, get over here right now. Come here. Calls a huddle, right? And this is what he tells them. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And I can almost hear, I don't know about you, but I can almost hear the overwhelming tone of Jesus' voice. The harvest is so plentiful. In other words, he's saying the need is so great. The need is so great. And the workers are so few. The, the resources to help fulfill what needs to be done are so few. But then I want you to notice what he says next. I think this is so, so, so interesting. Look at this. He says, therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. Now, this might seem paradoxical to us. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, man, the harvest is plentiful. There's so much to do. The workers are few. And then you would think he would say, therefore, get to work. That's not what he says. He says, therefore, pray for workers. Pray. Pray. Jesus must have understood something for us to understand that he tells us first to pray. But then, and this is what I want you to notice, then you get to chapter 10. And what happens in chapter 10, I think, is so important and is so significant because what happens in chapter 10 is a hinge point and is a pivot point in all of the gospel of Matthew. In fact, I want to show you this because I think it's so significant. It's so easy to read right past what happens next and totally miss it. And so I don't want you to miss it because I think what Matthew is inviting us to come and see at the beginning of chapter 10 is actually the purpose of every single one of our lives. So let me, let me show you what happens next. So chapter 10, check this out. The Bible says, Jesus now calls his disciples, he called his disciples to him. Now let me just pause there for a minute. The gospel of Luke actually sheds some light on this. The gospel of Luke tells us that between chapter nine, the end of chapter nine and the beginning of chapter 10, that Jesus would have spent all night in prayer. That's what Luke chapter 6 tells us. So Jesus said, pray for workers. Jesus himself would have spent all night in prayer. And then you get to chapter 10, verse 1. He calls his disciples to himself. Now look at this. This is so important. And he gave them authority. Now why is that so significant? Well, if you were here last week, you might remember that the whole message was about Jesus' authority. That's what it was about. Matthew chapter eight and chapter nine was about Jesus's unique authority, his unique, th- unique authority over disease, over evil, his unique authority over the wind and the waves, his unique authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority like no one else has authority. And now look what he's doing in chapter 10. He is giving that authority to his disciples. And now the disciples begin doing the very things that Jesus himself has been doing. Now I want you to notice this next thing because this is, this is just incredible to me. Watch what Matthew does next, verse two. These are the names of the 12 apostles. So right here, in fact, if you look at your Bible, you'll see Jesus right here in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew decides to reintroduce us to the 12 apostles. He's like, oh, this is a good spot for me to introduce you to the guys. Let me introduce you to the crew. Let me introduce you to the 12th. Now, that's interesting. Why is he doing that? Why is Matthew in the, gospel, uh, in the middle of the gospel of Matthew pausing to reintroduce us? He's already introduced us to most of these guys. Why is he reintroducing us to them? Now, this is what's so important. I don't want you to miss it. It all hangs on this term right here. It is this word, apostles. It's this word, apostles. I want you to notice something. Look back at uh, chapter 10, verse one. Do you notice what it says? It says this. It says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to himself, and he gave them authority. And then what happens in verse two? These are the names of the 12 apostles. Apostles. Disciples to apostles. There's a transition that takes place right here. Now, these two words, I think for many of us, especially if you grow up in the church, we would look at these two words, disciples and apostles, and we would think they're like interchangeable, right? It's like, oh, the 12 apostles, 12 disciples, same difference, right? Potato, potato, tomato, tomato, disciple, apostle. It's called the whole thing off, right? It's all the same thing. And we think that way. But let me tell you, that's not true. These are actually very different terms, very different terms. In fact, in the gospel of Matthew, from this point, chapter 10, verse one, and before, they're always called the disciples. But from this point after, from chapter, from chapter 10, verse 2 and following, they're called either the 12 or the 12 apostles. Now, why is that? Well, the key is the difference of the words. The word disciple and the Greek word is the word methetes, and it literally means student, and it means learner. That's what it means. The word apostle is different. It's the word apostolos in the Greek language, and it literally means sent. It's a word that was used for ambassadors of a king who were sent with his authority to represent his kingdom. And so do you see what's happening? Do you see what Matthew's doing? Matthew says that right here, this is a hinge point in which these guys' lives change. They go from students to sent, to apostles. They go from disciples to apostles. In other words, they go from, get this, they go from watchers. They were watching Jesus do his ministry, observing him, beneficiaries. They go from watchers to workers. Now they're co-laboring with Jesus doing the very things that he does. Now they're doing what Jesus himself does. Is doing. They go from learners to leaders. This is a pivot point for them in their life, where they transition from disciples to apostles. Now, what, what is Matthew inviting us to come and see? I believe it's this. I think Matthew is inviting us to come and see that this is the way that Jesus grows His kingdom. That the way in which He wants to do that is He wants to extend His movement through others, through His disciples, who eventually will become His apostles from students who eventually will be the sent ones, who will go from being saved to being sent. I think what he's telling us is this, is that for those of us who follow Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, that Jesus doesn't simply want us to be the beneficiaries of his salvation and of his grace and of his blessing, but much more than that, he wants us to be conduits of those things. He wants us to enjoy those things, but not let it stop there. Before it to flow through us and into the lives of others. And here's what I believe with all my heart. I believe that it is in this right here that your true purpose is found, that it's only in this that you will find the joy and the fulfillment in this life that God truly desires for you, is when you follow him and you allow him to use you. I mean, think about it for a minute. Think about Alan and Sammy. Think about Alan like I told you about earlier. How easy would it have been for him to simply be the beneficiary of the salvation he received and be a beneficiary of the education that he had and of the freedom that he has now in the United States. How easy would it be for him just to say, I'm so glad I was rescued from that terrible situation. I wanna leave it all behind and forget about it for the rest of my life and just live life for myself. How easy would that be for him? It'd be so easy. But instead, God has transformed his heart and he said, no, I must go back. I was saved so I could be sent And the very thing I experienced, I want to be a conduit of that into the lives of others. And because of him, 57 other lives have been transformed and have been changed. And so here's the question some of you might be asking here this morning. You might be hearing me say this and you might be hearing me say, God wants to use you. He wants to use you in powerful ways. And some of you might hear that and you might be thinking to yourself, you maybe already have dismissed me in your mind and maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, can God really use a person like me? Can God really use me? Because some of you are like, you know, I hear Alan's story. His story is amazing. I don't have a story like that. I grew up in Medina. The craziest thing that happened in my life is one time I lived in Brunswick for a while. Like, that was it. <laughs> and, and you're like, could God ever use me? And um, here's the answer. Absolutely. Absolutely. He can and he wants to and he will. And he will. Some of you are saying, but you don't know my story. Can God use me? My story is full of brokenness and dysfunction and... I've made so many mistakes along the way. There's been so much hurt and pain. You think God could use my, could could God use me? Here's the answer. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, what's interesting. We don't have time to get into it, but if you look at the list of 12 apostles and you double click on any one of those names, you know what you're gonna find? You're gonna find radically different stories. Some of these guys were strikingly normal. There was nothing, they were fishermen. Some of them, had incredibly broken backgrounds. We talked about Matthew a few weeks ago. Matthew came, he was a tax collector. He came from a terrible background. Some of these guys were religious, came from religious backgrounds. Some of them came from irreligious backgrounds. But you know what they all had in common? Here's what they all had in common. They followed Jesus and they were sent by Jesus and they were used by Jesus. And I'm just telling you, he wants to do the same thing in your life. I believe that for some of you, your stories, the story that you have, God has uniquely positioned you in such a way that he can uniquely use you in the lives of others. For some of you, your greatest pain, your greatest frustration, your greatest sin is your greatest opportunity to serve other people in ministry. And I'm just telling you, I don't want you to miss that. I don't want you to miss it. You'll find purpose in those things. So here's what I wanna close with. Practically speaking, you might be saying, well, how, how can I be used by God? How can I, practically speaking, how can I position myself to be used by God? And so let me just give you five practical ways that you can be used by God. I think they come right from this passage. Here's number one, all right? Number one's gonna sound so so simple, but we just can't skip it. The first one is this, follow Jesus. You wanna know the first movement to being used by God? Follow Jesus. If you're a person that's in this room and you're investigating Jesus, I just am telling you, God wants to save you, redeem you, forgive you, and send you, and use you. He wants to do all of those things, but it all starts here. In other words, you can't be an apostle unless you're first a disciple. That's just the way it works in the Bible. You become a disciple. What did Jesus tell his disciples? In Matthew chapter four, he said, follow me, follow me, and I will make you into fishers and men. Jesus will transform you. And he will do those things. But it begins with a vibrant relationship of following Jesus. And by the way, when we talk about following Jesus, we've talked about this in weeks past. What that means is it means not just, you know, giving God an hour of your week. What it means is radically reorienting your life around Jesus and the things of Jesus, allowing him to have authority in your life. So it starts here, follow Jesus. If you don't follow Jesus, I would just tell you, begin following Jesus. What's holding you back? Give your life to him. Number two, here's the second thing, Pray. Right. You notice what Jesus said. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. So pray. So pray. So pray. And I think there's something to that. Don't miss that that movement. That's a very important movement. Begin to pray. Pray that God would raise up workers. Pray that God would give you his eyes to see humanity the same way he sees humanity. Pray for the gut-level compassion that Jesus Christ himself has. Pray that you wouldn't be annoyed with your coworkers, neighbors, family, and friends. Pray that you wouldn't be angry with them. Pray that you would be full of compassion for them. Ask God to do that in you. And then here's the third thing. Pray, or after you're done praying, be willing to be the answer to the prayer you just prayed. Isn't it interesting that the very ones that Jesus commissioned to pray and the very next chapter Jesus commissioned to go? I think that's significant. I think if you're gonna pray for your family and your coworkers and your friends, you need to be willing to be the one that's going to be the answer to that prayer. If you're gonna pray for a need within our community, I think you need to be willing to say, God, and if it's me, send me. Let me be the answer, let me go. And so that's that's follow Jesus, pray, be willing. Here's the fourth thing. Go with others, go with others. Now again, we don't have time to get into it, but when you look at the list of apostles, if you actually look at it uh, in depth, You'll notice, if you look at that list, you'll notice that the apostles are all listed in pairs. All listed in pairs. Now, why is that? Well, the other gospels tell us Jesus never sent people out alone. He never did. That the mission of God is always done with a community of believers. Look, and we talk about this all the time at the Medina campus, all the time. Following Jesus is not a solo sport. It was never intended to be, right? There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. This is why it's so essential that you get connected to the life of other followers of Jesus. If you're a person that comes here on the weekend and you're the ninja, like we talk about the Christian ninja, the person who slips in the back and nobody sees them and then does this stuff with their hands. Like if you're that person, you're missing out on, on more than half of what God wants to do in your life. Being connected to things like life groups and biblical community helps us follow Jesus together, but it also unites us in his mission so that we can serve him together to go with others. And then here's the last one get equipped. Get equipped. And there comes a time when you have to say, all right, I'm going I'm to get prepared. I'm going to get equipped to do the things that God wants me to do. The book of Ephesians says it this way. It says that God wants those of us who follow him to be equipped for the ministry that he has designed for us to do. And so Ephesians 4 tells us that's what God desires. In fact, if you read the rest of Matthew chapter 10, what is Jesus doing? He is equipping and preparing his disciples to go out. And so I would tell you, get equipped. Now, how do you do that? Well, this is why we have things like the equipping division here at the Medina East Campus. Uh, you heard Tommy talk about it earlier. Here's the whole heart of the equipping division. The equipping division is built not to, uh, not to gain and acquire more knowledge. That's not why it's there. It is there to equip you and release you to do the ministry that God desires for you to do. That's why it's there. And the equipping division, Tommy mentioned it. It's two courses that we currently have. What is the Bible? What is Christianity? I'm just telling you, these are no joke. They're a pretty heavy level, two and a half hours, tested, graded, university level equipping, all right? But here's what we found. We found that, man, many, many people are looking for um, ways to be equipped in these ways, and this is a phenomenal way to do that. Let me just say that if you wanna get connected to the equipping division, Tommy mentioned it earlier, unfortunately, because of space issues, we've had to cap each class at 70 per class. Currently, right now, I think there's 8 to 10 spots in each of them. That was as of last night, so I don't know how many spots are left. But I would say, if you're interested, sign up now and do that. You can do that on our website. Get connected in those ways and get equipped. We'll be offering it in the fall, so if you can't make it this round, make sure to have you the next round as well. But get equipped. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line is I believe that God's greatest and most thrilling blessings in your life are found when you go from being a disciple of Jesus to becoming an apostle. It's found when you start to give your life for the sake of others because it's in that that you find the purpose and the joy that I believe that Jesus has created for you. And so let me just say this as well, that if you are a follower of Jesus in this room and you are sitting there and you are comfortably saved and you are enjoying all the benefits of your salvation and your redemption and the blessings that God is bestowing in your life, but it's going into you and it's not flowing out of you, I'm just telling you, I think you're missing out. I think you're missing out. And I think you're missing the picture of what God wants to do in you because he's got some great stuff in store for you. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I'm so thankful that you didn't just uh, come here to save us and leave us, but you came here to save us and use us. We get to be part of what you're doing. We get to be co-laborers in this incredible work that you're doing on this earth. That is a privilege. That is amazing. And Father, I believe that it's only through that that we find our true purpose, why you made us. And uh, Father, there's so many competing voices that we hear in our society that are telling us this is where purpose is, this is where significance is, this is how you fill the emptiness inside of you. And Father, all of these are, uh, all of these are leaving us harassed and helpless. And Father, you're a good shepherd. You're the good shepherd. And you wanna lead us into true value, into true worth. You wanna lead us into true fulfillment and a true purpose in this life. And so I pray that you'd help us to find that, God. Help us to find that. Jesus, I pray for every person in this room that's investigating, following you. I ask that they would come and see uh, that you're good, that you love us, that you wanna transform us and that you can. And Father, I pray that you would put our trust and our hope in you. We do wanna pray, we wanna join you, Jesus. So you prayed it, and we, you, tell, you told us to pray it, and so we wanna just echo your prayer that you'd raise up workers, raise up workers to send to the harvest. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be willing. Could we be the answer to the prayer that you prayed, to the prayer, that you, the prayer you invited us to pray? Would you make us willing? We pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen.